0: Hey there, ass kickers! Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I hope that this episode finds you well and doing awesome. I'm excited to have you listen to the interview I had with my friend Quentin. But before I do that, I want to let you know that I have one lucky spot for private coaching right now. And keep in mind, I am cutting back on my private practice in the new year. So if you have thought about working with me one on one, if you've kind of put it in the back of your mind and thought you might be interested in it. Listen up, because I'm about to tell you the typical woman that I work with. Now, I'm choosing just one archetype to tell you about. There are some variations, and you can read all about that if you go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash daring. But I'm going to describe the typical woman that comes to my private practice. She is someone who has kicked ass in her 9-to-5 career, but many times those days look like 8 to 8 or 7 to 9 p.m., and her career has basically become her identity. She knows logically that she's a good person, smart and capable, but it's that deep-sinking feeling that she has that she doesn't feel good enough and she can't seem to shake it. Again, her career has taken off, and it's her personal relationships, though, that have taken a back seat. She's not confiding in her best friends the real pain that she has. The struggle, the frustrations, the disappointments. Instead, she stuffs it all with wine or food or more work. That pain I just mentioned, she doesn't dare open up Pandora's box. So in other words, she has all these disappointments and sometimes grief and loss about things that have happened in her life and anger that hasn't been properly processed. On the outside, everyone thinks that she has got it all together. But really what's happened is she has gotten to the end of her rope and tied a knot and is holding on and her palms are beginning to sweat and she doesn't know what to do. Usually this person has been to therapy and knows her family of origin stuff and things like that and processed some things, loves personal development, reads all the self-help books, listens to all the podcasts, and just doesn't really know how to put it into practice, just needs that guidance and that focus and attention to be able to learn the tools in her life, to be able to have those hard conversations with people, to be able to process the emotions, to be able to have some self-compassion, and then also logistical things like setting boundaries at work and putting herself first for once. That's where I come in, and that's where this work comes in. It is a mixture of The Daring Way, which is a certification that I have based on the research of Dr. Brene Brown and her senior faculty, mixed in with my own curriculum. My own love and flair, as I like to call it, is a intensive deep dive six month program. No, it does not require you to do hours and hours on end a week because who has time for that, right? (laughs) The women that I work with are busy and it is a process that changes lives. I am so honored to be able to do this work. There are many women who have gone through this already, and you can read their stories on yourkickasslife.com forward slash daring. And on that page, you can fill out an application if you think it's for you. All applications come directly to me, so please don't worry that it is going to be seen by other people. They all just come directly to me, and I look forward to hearing from you. So let's talk about today's show. And real quick, next week, I have Laura Powers on, and she is a psychic medium, which you're like, what? Why would you have a psychic medium on? Why does it have to do with personal development? It's a really good interview. So (laughs) please stay tuned for that next week. And then the following week, we are doing another listener Q&A episode. I know you guys like those because those are the most downloaded episodes ever, the Q&A ones. So I'm going to do more of those. Please send me your questions. I have a few that I've been backed up on. So I have some, but I do need more. You can go to the contact form on the website and send us your question, and I would love to be able to answer it here on the air with one of my beloved coaching friends. It's always fun to be able to jam with them and answer your questions, and I look forward to seeing those questions as well. All right. So let me tell you a little bit about Quentin Venny. Quentin is a celebrated wellness expert, motivational speaker and author of the memoir, Strong in the Broken Places. Plagued with low self-esteem and feelings of abandonment, he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression at age 14. Years later, he developed a prescription drug and alcohol addiction that drained him of everything, including his desire to live. His unbelievable road to recovery has been publicly celebrated by notable figures in the world of wellness and beyond. Quentin's transformation has inspired thousands worldwide and has raised global awareness of anxiety, depression, and addiction. He is living proof that during our weakest moments, we have the power and ability to unlock unimaginable strength. So without further ado, here is Quentin. Quentin, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored.
0: Uh, Well, I'll tell the audience about how you and I met like five minutes ago on the internet. (laughs) Bex Baruki, Rebecca Baruki has been a guest here on the show and we love her. And she had posted about your book just coming out. And so I clicked on your profile and was just enamored and fascinated with your story and this topic in general. And I was like, Quentin. You need to come and be on my podcast. And then a couple of days later, here you are. So I'm I'm so glad that we were able to work something out. And well, first, congratulations on your book. I know that's such a big deal.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: And let me just kind of jump right into the deep end. That's what I like to do over here on the show. And you were diagnosed with anxiety disorder and depression at the age of 14. So can you tell us what was happening to you during that time and, and kind of give us, you know, the, the CliffsNotes version of your story and what led up to that?
1: Absolutely. I was born and raised in Baltimore, and, you know, for those of you who don't know, Baltimore you know, outside of the wire, you know, was considered, you know, the heroin capital of America at that time in the 80s and 90s. My father was a heroin addict. It's also one of the most dangerous cities. So I, uh, you know, everything that people have seen on the wire, I've experienced firsthand in some capacity. So when I was 14, I was diagnosed with acute anxiety and acute depression, and they wanted to put me on Prozac. You know, my mother has always been very anti-medication. So, you know, she pretty much told them no. That we would just figure it out, you know, and at that time and even today, like in, you know, in the African-American community, mental health is not something that's normally talked about. Like we don't, you know, just walk down the street with our friend and say, hey, Brandon, I'm feeling a little depressed today. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I really didn't understand what anxiety was. I didn't understand what depression was. You know, these weren't things that we communicated about. These weren't things that we shared. So, you know, I was experiencing just difficulty breathing and dizziness and, you know, tightness in the chest and I'm 14 years old and I'm not understanding why, you know, and then to be told that I have, you know, these things, you know, that weren't in our minds very prevalent to our lives, you know, at the time, you know, it was a bit of a scary kind of a experience to say the least, you know, and then to be told that I, you know, I would need medication, which is something else that we don't really do in our community, you know, it was a little offsetting, you know, it was off-putting. And, you know, so I went the next 12 years of my life just figuring life out, you know, just making mistakes and growing and, you know, doing, you know, all of the things. And then when I was 26, I started to experience even more severe episodes. You know, my first, I had my first panic attack in the gym. And, you know, I spent the next 30 days after that day pretty much sleeping in my car in the parking lot of my emergency room hospital because I would have these episodes just kind of fly out of nowhere, you know? And the symptoms, you know, mimic the symptoms of a heart attack. So, you know, when I would have a panic attack, I literally thought I was gonna die. Yeah. And then that's why I was officially diagnosed with a uh, severe generalized anxiety and panic disorder and mild to severe major depressive disorder.
0: Wow, okay, so, I assume, too, that not only being an African-American and having that in your community and your culture not be something that's talked about, but I think especially for males, I think mm-hmm. it's – it's you know, for females, it's like, well, you know, we're known as being more emotional and, you know, I'm using air quotes over here. But I think especially – I would assume that it would be even harder for males.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very hard for males. I mean, I think, uh, you know – we were raised in a society and a culture where, you know, we had to be hyper-masculine, you know, and I call it the mask of masculinity where, you know, we were expected to be like these warrior types, you know, that went outside and chopped the wood and killed the ox and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and were the protectors, you know, of our families. And, and all those things may be true, but it doesn't mean that we still aren't given permission to feel because before we are man, before we are woman, before we are anything, we're human first. And I think, you know, our culture and our society strips us away from our humanity and it puts us in these categories and gives us these titles and these responsibilities. And we're expected to live up to those. And if we do anything counter that, then we're looked at different. You know, I think, you know, for men like that's essentially what it's grown to become. You know, if you're if you're less than the, the Marlboro Reds type, then you're not man enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and I think that's uh, that's damaging to men across the country and, and even essentially across the world.
0: Yes, I do a lot of work around shame. And I the thing about shame is that it, it's the same in both men and women. But the research shows us that it's gender specific. And for women, what tends to be our number one shame trigger is our body and our appearance. And for men, the number one shame trigger is looking weak and being perceived by other people, by men or women, you know, being perceived by the world as someone who is weak. So I'm sure there was a shame element in all of that as well for
1: you. Absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, on top of that, you know, I went through body image issues. I mean, I'm 5'7", right? I was 128 pounds soaking wet with Timberland boots on, mm-hmm. you know, so like I, like I said, I had my first panic attack at the gym because I became obsessed with trying to change my body you know, into something that I thought society and culture would accept, you know, more, you know, like, okay, well, I'm not one. you know, but if I can get some muscles, then, you know, then it can change everything. Yeah. And I think it was that obsession and, you know, with just not loving who I was, and not really addressing the problems that were existing in my life, and the things that happened to me in my past, I think those things like just came to a head, and they came out in my anxiety. I mean, I'm a firm believer that anxiety is our body's way of communicating something to us is telling us that something needs to be addressed or something needs to be changed, you know, in some capacity. And it's up to us to really figure out what that is.
0: Absolutely. I was diagnosed with severe generalized anxiety disorder when I was 20, I think it was 26 or 27 and mild panic disorder. And for me, I have a kind of similar story to yours, but different in that I was at the doctor's office. And, you know, she gave me that quiz and it was several pages long. And I remember she left the room while I was doing it. And then I added up the scores. There was like the score thing on there. I added up the scores before she even came back in the room. And I remember looking at it and thinking kind of a sense of relief, but at the same time thinking, I don't want this to be mine. I don't. And I didn't understand it either. I was under the mentality, you know, mental illness was not discussed in my family at all. Mm -hmm. My father About eight years prior to that had been diagnosed with, my father got sober and was immediately diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety disorder. My dad had a panic attack in the middle of an intersection while he was in his car and had to have the ambulance called. It was awful. He was by himself. And when that happened, I was like, what is wrong with him? Like, why can't he just figure this out? You know, that's the mentality I had. So then when I was diagnosed a few years later, it was the same. You know, I didn't have any yeah. compassion for myself because I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't know anyone that had had – I knew one person in my entire life who had had depression. She was one of my parents' friends, and it was actually my dad's best friend's wife, and she committed suicide. And that was all I knew about mental illness and depression. And so it terrified me and was very confusing. I didn't want it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I thought medication and finally did get on medication. But before I get ahead of myself, I'm curious. It sounds like there was a decent amount of time where you got your diagnosis at age 14. And then so you spent a fair amount of time with that going on, but not being on any kind of medication or a program or anything like that. So were you doing anything else to try to manage it? Like for me, it was, I was a severe codependent and an eating disorder. And then alcohol became what I used to manage it. Was there anything for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I self-medicated with alcohol and marijuana. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize at the time that that's what I was doing. I didn't know that I was escaping it. I didn't know that I was numbing it. I went with what was the most accepted in my community. And those were the two things. So, you know, every chance I got, you know, I was smoking and, you know, and drinking, and, and it went from an occasional thing to being, you know, practically an everyday thing.
0: Yeah. Myself included. Yeah. And they they say in the rooms of recovery, it works until it doesn't. And I think for me, I got to that point where it worked until it didn't. And oh, so, okay, so now, you know, fast forward all these years later in your book, you talk about, you have this process on how you manage your anxiety and depression. So can you give us like a snapshot of what that is?
1: Sure. It's what I consider my trinity of wellness, And it's yoga, meditation, and fruit and vegetable juicing, or diet. You know, I didn't realize at the time that my diet had played such a pivotal role in my anxiety. I didn't know that there was a connection between the food we ate and the the way we felt. Prior to being diagnosed, I did have a personal training business, a pretty successful personal training business back in Baltimore. So I knew that, you know, your food affected your weight. You know, it, it could affect your muscle mass. It could affect, you know, all of these things but I didn't think that it necessarily affected the way we felt emotionally Mm -hmm. and psychologically. You know, it can eliminate brain fog and give you sustainable energy and, you know, all of these things. So, you know, and then with yoga and meditation, I think, you know, yoga provided me the physical activity that I was, that anxiety had taken away from me. So I was terrified of, of working out. I didn't go back to the gym after that, you know, and even as a personal trainer, I was training my clients and was afraid to do the exercises that I was asking them to do, you know. So yoga allowed me to to find that level of physical activity again while, you know, experiencing the challenges that are associated with it, you know, as well as, you know, understanding my strengths and weaknesses. And then meditation, which I found, you know, in yoga, in Shavasana, um, or Corpse Pose, you know, it enables me the ability to kind of go within myself and step outside of my reality Without having to use any kind of external substances to do so. So, those are the three, you know, pillars of what I use on a day to day basis to maintain my anxiety.
0: So, okay. So, I love that. And I always like, (laughs) my audience knows that I've had this kind of like tumultuous relationship with yoga and meditation. And Mm -hmm. I am someone who is extroverted and high energy and just. It's, it's been a struggle, Quentin. Let me just tell you,
1: I I love
0: people like you so much, (laughs) but I think my question, I guess is because there's many avenues, you know, to Mm -hmm. health. And I think that people listening, you know, you have to find the one that, that works for you the best. And, and my, I guess my question is, It sounds like, you know, and from reading your book, it sounds like there was a lot of emotional turmoil for you growing up and family of origin issues and really tough stuff, you know, feelings of grief and disappointment, et cetera, et cetera. So have you used yoga to process that? Because I know personally, my anxiety has decreased immensely since I, you know, quit all the vices, I got sober and all those things, and then really did the hard work of looking at What all the pain was and really processing Mm -hmm. that in healthy ways rather than numbing it all out and running away from it. Have you used yoga for that or has there been any other modalities?
1: Well, for me, yoga kind of forced me to shift my perception and change the conversation I was having with myself. I remember I was taking my 200-hour teacher training and we were doing like a chair pose. And this is, you know, in the book as well. And we're doing chair pose. And in the middle of chair pose, I'm having a full-blown panic attack. And in that, I was was close to a year year into my sobriety, but I would still travel with my pills. That was like my safety net. So I had my pills, you know, outside the classroom, you know, in my book bag. And I'm having a full-blown panic attack. I'm deciding in my mind what I should do. Should I just allow this thing to consume me and run outside and grab those pills You know, should I call the ambulance, which is what I was known to do, you know, as well. And right before I made the decision to get up and get out of chair pose and go, you know, get the pills, the instructor came over and she, you know, my teacher came over and she, you know, she said something along the lines of, you know, your reaction to pain does not change the fact that it exists. Your reaction to it changes the impact that it has in your life. And a lot of times it's important for us to find comfort in being uncomfortable. So she was like, find the comfort in being uncomfortable in this moment, because what you getting up and you leaving or you grunting or you doing anything is not going to change the fact that you're in an uncomfortable position. And it's like that clicked for me. And I was able to take that lesson and apply it to every area of my life, including my sobriety, including my anxiety and my depression. Because, you know, we're always going to be placed in uncomfortable positions, but it's our reaction to it that will enable it to, you know, become suffering or is it just an uncomfortable situation? You know, like suffering is the mindset. Suffering is allowing pain to permeate every area of your life and control you. Right. So I learned that lesson in yoga. And from there, I was able to change the conversation and stop, you know, telling myself you know, that I was my anxiety and stopped conditioning myself to believe that my anxiety was stronger than I was. And, you know, it it started there. So, you know, that shifted my perception almost immediately. And, you know, I haven't turned back from that point.
0: I love that so much. (laughs) And kudos to your yoga teacher. And I think that, like you were saying, like you can apply it to every area of your life. And I, I know for probably many people listening who have started their personal development journey and and know that uncomfortable place. And I call that the point of no return. Like when you go in and you start to see all of the stuff you need to deal with or Mm -hmm. really start to lean into the grief or even just – admit that you have all these issues that you need to look right. at. Like you can't right. unsee that. I truly believe too that there's like this period of time that not a lot of people acknowledge and that's why I like to acknowledge it is like you get to that point and then for some people I think that there's either like a moment of panic or many moments of panic or a moment, you know, some grief where they're like okay, I can't turn back. Like I can't go back to that ignorant place. I can't go back to that the not knowing and the not seeing. So my only choice really is to stay where I am or to move forward. And I think some people stay where they are for a while, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think people need to kind of go at their own pace. You know, the, the pain isn't going to go anywhere. Like you were just saying, <laughs> it's what Absolutely. you do with it. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit because I know that this book is so powerful. And by the way, everyone, it's strong in the broken places. You can grab the link in the show notes and learn more about Quentin from that. And I love this conversation because, you know, as someone who, you know, I have a family history of mental illness and I myself have dealt with it. How do you feel that we can change the stigma around mental illness?
1: To be completely honest, I think we're doing that now. Yeah. I think by continuing to expand the conversation, you know, we heal as a community and, you know, like my whole goal in sharing my story was to inspire at least one person every day to keep pushing forward and to not give up. And I don't care if that's from an article that I've written from a social media post or from a personal interaction, that's always been my goal. And, you know, I think the only way for us to end the stigma is to continue the conversation. We have to show that, you know, our mental illness doesn't make us weak. The people who suffer through anxiety or depression are the strongest people that I've ever met in my life because it takes so much To get up every single day and put one foot in front of the other when you're challenged with your own mind and your greatest fear is your own thoughts. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You can't be a weak person and get up and do that. I'm sorry. Yeah. You You know what I mean? So, you know, by understanding that vulnerability is ultimate strength, we have more in common than we have, you know, differences. So it's like we need to continue to grow within that. And expand that and share our experiences and what has helped us and, you know, what may have worked and what may not have worked, you know, and just come together as a community. And I think that's the only way that it's going to happen.
0: Absolutely. And I love that you said that. I got goosebumps when you said, you know, like when you're living in a place where your own thoughts is your greatest fear. I remember that place. I remember that place. And I remember... Feeling like it felt very lonely too. And I knew like from a like a conscious level, like I knew that I wasn't the only one, but it's like that deep gut feeling of like I can't really show everyone how painful this is and how Mm -hmm. quote unquote bad it is because I felt like I would be rejected, I would be I was not like the others. (laughs) (laughs) That's that whole shame thing. Yeah. I think it can be really lonely and I think that what we make up is that we're wrong. You know, we're doing life wrong. Like we are wrong as humans. Our brains are wrong and our emotions are wrong and all of it. So I agree with you. I think it's conversations like this. I think it's people coming out and saying, I've struggled with this too, whether it's addiction or anything. And, and here's how I'm still walking through it. Cause I don't know about you. Like, I feel like it's still a part of me. Like I'm not like, woo, glad I'm done with that.
1: You know. <laughs> I <laughs> still
0: have to manage it. I don't know. What about you?
1: No, I feel the same way. I feel like anxiety and depression is not something that can be eradicated. It's something that needs to be managed. Right. You know, I don't think that we're ever going to completely get rid of our anxiety. It's a part of us. You know, it, it, it doesn't make up the fabric of our character, but it's something that, you know, if we, you know, go back to our old habits and behaviors, it's going to pop back up. It's going to send you that Six o'clock text message like, hey buddy, what's going on today? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's something that you know, it's a, it's never going to change. It's never going to completely go away. It's going to be like that annoying friend that we all have.
0: <laughs> that you just kind of learn to live with, and you're like, well, I guess it's yeah. not so bad.
1: Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's struggling exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> and we all have that person.
0: Yes, we do, or, or family member. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, tell us, what have you learned the most through this whole process?
1: Well, I think what I've learned the most is essentially the same lesson that I, I want people to get from the book, is that God is real, prayer works, and you are capable. You know, we have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for. And I think we live in a culture that doesn't reward our power. We live in a culture that's driven by fear, a society that's driven by fear, and as a result, we're forced to make a decision based off of that fear. And I think that, you know, for me, I realized that I could do literally anything in this world. I'm a black guy from the inner city of Baltimore, father was a heroin addict, grew up in one of the most dangerous cities in America, you know, dealt drugs in the streets myself, for a period of time, became addicted to pills, survived an accidental overdose, two failed suicide attempts, never graduated from college, was told that I'd be dead or in prison by the time I was 18, didn't expect to live past 25, yet here I am, 33 years old with a book in sores.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we are literally able to change the trajectory of our lives at any given time if we believe we can. And if we're willing to put in the work, and I think anxiety pushed me to be so uncomfortable, I was either going to be okay with dying, or I was going to find a way to fight to live. And that's what it did for me.
0: Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's so inspiring. And I I know that we have a lot of listeners that struggle with anxiety and or addiction or depression or love somebody that does. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and share a story. And I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. And that's, who have been the greatest teachers in your life?
1: The greatest teachers in my life? That's a good question. Never been asked that one before. I would say my mother.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. My mother is definitely one. I mean, she lost her mom when she was 15 years old, you know, lost her father when I was six. She was forced to drop out of college at 21 you know, her junior year when she got pregnant with me. And I've seen my mother go through hell, and I've seen her find little pieces of heaven. And I've seen this woman never give up and never stop fighting for me and never stop fighting to give me something better, even when she didn't know what that better was. So I think my mother is probably my greatest inspiration, motivation. But then I also have other people like, you know, like Tara Styles, like Bex, like Wes Moore, like Gabby Bernstein, like Chris Carr, you know, Chris Carr inspired and motivated me to even start this health and healing journey, you know, by sharing her story. Mm -hmm. And had she not shared hers, I probably wouldn't be here right now, in the most literal sense. So I think, you know, I find mentorship from so many different people in so many different places from our shared experiences. There are people on social media that Follow me that, you know, that I find inspiration from because they'll share little pieces and glimpses of their stories as well. You know, so I, I just find it in so many different places,
0: awesome. so many different people. I love that. And I lied. I have one more question. OK, so what is your favorite juicer?
1: <laughs> my my favorite juicer right now is the Omega. Okay. I, have an, I have an Omega. Uh, it's a masticating juicer. I heard the Norwalk is pretty phenomenal. Okay. I haven't been privileged enough yet to get my hands on one. But, uh, Did you right say now,
0: masticating juicer? Is that like uh, along the same word as massacre?
1: <laughs> no, I hope not.
0: Well, no, it's like, so- I was thinking, like, is that what it does to the vegetables?
1: <laughs> I guess so, yeah. like I think, I think that's a good way to put it. I never thought about it like that. That's pretty dangerous. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, it's a juicer. I have a Breville. And it's just like the lowest model and it works pretty well. It's just a, it's pitch a to clean.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, it's a, and that's a centrifugal juicer and, you know, like there are two different, you know, like dynamics with those, you know, a, a centrifugal juicer, you, you make the juice right then and there, you drink it on the spot, you know, where a masticating juicer, usually because it doesn't use heat to spin a blade, it keeps the live enzymes a little bit more intact and it allows you to. To hold the juices, to keep the juices stored for at least seventy-two hours. Yeah, so I mean, the first juicer I bought was a General Electric centrifugal juicer from Walmart for like sixty bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, and I went from that to the Jack LaLanne juicer to the Breville, you know, now to the Omega, and eventually I'll invest in a Norwalk. But I had to get a Vitamix first, so yeah, I have mm-hmm. a Vitamix too. So,
0: fun fact: I dated Jack Lane's great nephew.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Wow for a short
0: time many years ago yes I will leave it at that <laughs> and, no he's a, he's a nice guy but yeah the whole juice and it's interesting with I feel like there's like team juicing or team blending you know like
1: right <laughs> yep. the great debate and I'm team juice all day
0: I think I am too I was team blend but I think I'm team juice too well you've inspired me to get my juicer out I haven't got it out and gosh it's been over a year. But I will get out my Breville and just put some elbow grease in and clean it. And thank you so much for being here, Quentin. Strong in the broken places, you guys. You can get it on Amazon and bookstores. And over at the show notes, I have easy links for you to go and grab that. Thank you again for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a privilege. I love the fact that we can sit down and have you know, progressive conversations. And, and I hope that, you know, your listeners get something out of this and, you know, we continue to grow and make an impact. So thank you for your time and thank you for your service and everything that you're doing.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And Ask Kickers, thank you again so much for being here for another episode of the podcast. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, Ass Kickers, you know it would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google, stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review you. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.